Well, we had a great baptism last Sunday, didn't we? What a celebration. What a, what a great day. Boy, if you missed that, next, next year you got to jump out there. It's just a great, great time as we watch people being obedient to their Savior. Cool stuff. A couple things coming up before we dive in. Um, this, I'm a little out of breath. I actually ran across the building a minute ago. Because <laughs> I didn't have my mic. Um, this Friday, this Friday night, September 23rd, uh, there is a, a women's event at 7 o'clock right here at Grace. It's a simulcast called Cry Out. Come here, join women from around the country. Mindy's, is Mindy in here? Mindy, right, Mindy, stand up. M Mindy is director of our women's ministry, and uh, so you need to know her. There's probably one service everybody knows, Mindy. But uh, this Friday, we have a great event planned, 7 o'clock here. There's no registration. There's no fee. It's free. Come in. It'll be simulcast with people around the country. There's a lot of Christian leaders that will be involved as they look at Scripture, praise God, pray, um, and, and then focus on different areas like our families, our churches, our country, our world. It's going to be exciting. We want you to be there 7 o'clock Friday night. We're in a series uh, called No Spin, Just Jesus, and we're actually looking at what Jesus said about our involvement as believers with government. And when we kicked that off, we remembered back when Jesus was asked a very political question about whether to pay a certain tax uh, to Rome or not. And he answered that amazingly. His answer was just genius. And actually, his answer when he basically said, give to Caesar some of what he wants, but not everything he wants. In that answer, he taught us really three, three ways to respond. He rejected three common responses that we have to politics today. One, he rejected political simplicity. They wanted yes or no, he didn't give them yes or no. The second thing is he rejected political apathy. He could have refused to answer the question and not be engaged with a political kind of debate. He got engaged. And then thirdly, he rejected political supremacy in that in his answer, we realize that the answer to the world's problems is not human government, not any government. It's really through, the answer is in God through Jesus Christ. Then later, we notice that Jesus was, answered, was asked another question, which was political in the day, about what we have 613 laws in their nation at the time, which is the most important? And probably they did not expect his answer. They, they were probably expecting one of, of several other answers, but he said, love God first, love people second. God first. Basically the same answer, by the way, he gave to the political question about the taxes, God first. Then last Sunday, we looked at how the, the people closest to Jesus, his disciples, specifically Peter and John, but then and the rest of the disciples as we saw, how they put into practice Jesus' teaching about our interaction with government. And so remember they, they were jailed and, and that what they were saying, and basically 
when John and Peter were jailed and when all the disciples were jailed two different times, their answer was the same, we must obey God first rather than men. And then today, what I want to do is look at a passage in 1 Peter. And now, so we saw how the disciples applied the teaching of Jesus, and now we're going to look at how Peter instructs others from his connection with Jesus as he talks about Christians and government. And we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, but I want to lay some groundwork before we get there. What we're going to see is that in Peter's instruction is that he really answers three questions that I think are relevant for us today. How should Christians view government? How has our Christian influence shown up in our government? And third, what should we as believers expect from government and everyone else, non-believers? So, first of all, how should we Christians interact with government? Well, I think there's some wrong views about how we interact with government that sometimes get floated out there. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with non-believers as to what Christians want. First wrong view is that government should compel religion. Wrong. A lot of times, people outside the Christian faith think that we as Christians want to force Christianity on people. But nobody knows better than Christians that you cannot force Christianity on people. So Christians want not a state religion, not to force people to be Christians. What we seek is religious freedom. So the free exchange of ideas so people can actually seek truth, which, by the way, is a lot different, right, than Muslim-dominated countries. Islam believes you force people into religion. Christianity does not believe that. So that's a wrong view about Christians and government. And then the other thing is, the other wrong view is that government should exclude religion. So government shouldn't compel religion, force religion, and government shouldn't exclude religion. Excluding religion is what the ACL and the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, that's what they push. They push, hey, religion can, has to be totally separate. We can't mention God. We can't mention God in a public building, or we can't pray. We can't pray in Jesus' name. You know, all, that's what they're always pushing, that you have to exclude religion. But that's not what our founding fathers intended. I mean, twice in the Declaration of Independence, in the first two sentences, God is mentioned in our declaration. That was completely foreign to their understanding of how our country would be. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the exercise thereof. That doesn't mean that there should be no religious expression in, a, in the public square or on government property. That means that the government should not force a state religion like they had in England with the Church of England. They're saying, no, that just messes up church and it messes up government. We're not forcing, we're, we're not compelling, but we're also not excluding. That's what they understood. And again, we're talking about the way we should run our country is by our founding fathers' documents and their original intent, not how we can twist words and make it say something that they obviously did not mean. 
And that's the whole judges issue. So how should we view Christians and government? Well, first of all, as we interact with government, we, we realize that as Americans, actually, we who are believers, we're Christians first. Then we're Americans. That's what Peter is pointing out to us in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 9. He's writing believers, and here's what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Very interesting, because what Peter does here is he uses some Old Testament language for Israel, and he applies it to the church. And he says, when we come to Christ by faith, we are a new people, a chosen nation, a, a new race. We're, we're different. We leave all that behind. We are Christians first. And that should impact every area of our life. And I think that's another big misunderstanding with Christianity. And, and by the way, that ties in exactly to what Jesus was teaching all along. God first. God first. That's what he kept saying. That's what the disciples were saying. We as believers, when we become a believer, enter into a Christian, a new Christian culture. Not a subculture. A lot of times in our lives, we're a part of different things, subcultures. You know, if you're a bowler, then, you know, bowlers have their own, I, I did that for a little while. They have their own language. They have their own funky shirts and weird shoes. You know, they have all their stuff. And then, and then you slowly learn all that. That's a subculture. Or if you're into archery like my son-in-law, well, then they have their own lingo and kind of what they do and how they dress, subculture. If you're a, a skateboarder, you know, all these are subcultures. But basically, the majority of what they believe as people, it's, they're part of our culture. They would believe the same as our culture. Christians enter into not a new subculture. We enter into a new culture, meaning when we become a believer, it changes how we view everything, how we view ourselves, how we view other people, how we view work, how we view money. Everything changes. We're a new culture. It's not like we have a file drawer of our life, and when we become a Christian, we have this new Christian file, and we tuck that in there. It's when we become Christians, it's a whole new drawer, and everything changes in there because we're Christians first, and everything flows out of that. You've got to understand that. Christianity's first. It dominates everything in our life. There's no distinctions. At grace, we can have no distinctions of race or class ever follow us into grace. 
because we are all His chosen people. Actually, if you look at the wording here, it's His own people, or back in the King James, a peculiar people. You know, we're His own people, His people, new people that He claims, God's own people. Grace Community Church, we can't be a social club. We're a counter culture, a culture that, that goes the, the different way from the rest of our culture we live among. We're a counter culture as believers. We're a movement. We, we should be united. We're open to those outside, but we have to be connected to other believers. And if you don't have that in your life, that, that needs to be a part of your Christianity. Not that you just follow God and God's first, that's great, but we love others. But also, He intends for us to be together as church. God intends for us as believers to live in community, connected to other believers, always welcoming those on the outside in by loving others. So first of all, we're Christians first. That's our relationship to government. Second, Christians should submit to government as long as the submitting doesn't cause us to violate God's commands. That's what Jesus said. That's how John and Peter lived it out, right? That's what they were saying. We talked about that last Sunday. We must obey God rather than men. But now let's Let's read how Peter continues in his instructions in, in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, or the non-believers is the context here, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Talking about government now. Whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the, ignorant, the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That is an extremely political statement, is it not? He's telling us, submit yourselves to human government, that God has instituted. Romans 13 tells us this. God's instituted human government. It's appropriate. We should submit ourselves to all forms of hu human government until any time, as we've learned, that, it that in, in submitting to the government, it violates God's commands. That's the only time that we're right to not submit. So we keep God first, we submit to government as long as it doesn't violate God's commands. And third, Christians should do good to influence all people, including government. We should do good 
And that will influence people, how they view us. And we will be able to influence government. That's the salt and light kind of a thing. That's where he says, keep, we just read it, keep your behavior excellent among the non-believers, the Gentiles. And he also says, honor all people. This, he's talking about doing good. We influence our culture by doing good and then pointing them to God. And I got to tell you, Western civilization has been hugely impacted by Christianity. No Christianity, no Jesus Christ, Western civilization as we know it right now would be completely different because it's been so… We can't even pull out the influence of Christianity on Western… It's embedded in Western culture. Now, we're drifting from that, but, but you can't even separate that out. It's so embedded. And our country benefits from a moral influence of believers, and it always has. So if that's the way that, that we should interact or view government, then the next question that we want to answer is, when has that influence shown up in America? Do, do we see that? If that's the way we view government, that we keep God first, that we submit, unless it violates God's command, that we do good, we make an impact, we influence, well, then when has that shown up? Well, it's shown up from the very beginning, right? The founding fathers, Christians by a huge majority, believers who trusted in Jesus Christ is, is what I'm saying. The Bible is teaching that all human beings are created in the image of God and have equal status before God had a huge influence on our founding fathers, and it crept into our foundational documents, including our bold declaration that all men are created equal. That was not a given in the 1700s, right? This was a new, bold declaration. We had most people had come from England where there was a king. Nobody viewed the king as equal to anyone else. This is a Christian concept. Secondly, where did it show up? Well, the main points will be our founding, the abolition of slavery. The abolition of slavery in the 18th century is when that movement started, was a predominantly Christian movement in the face of a savage slave system. And it started among Christians in Europe and, and England in particular and in America. And Christians all, it wasn't, it wasn't a country thing. It was a Christian movement all across the globe to end slavery. And that impacted our founding fathers. Slavery was an issue then. It didn't get resolved in our country until a civil war and then the civil rights movement. By the way, civil rights movement, who was the leader of that movement? Was he a politician? No. He was what? A, he's a preacher. Martin Luther King Jr., who from his Christian convictions challenged the conscience of a nation and hugely impacted the passing of laws to end 
discrimination and segregation. Every major, we, I could go on and on about the influence of wars. There used to be a time when we were at war, the president would, would write out a prayer to God and, have, and encourage everybody to stop everything they're doing and pray. D-Day. Can you give you an example after example after example how Christianity has impacted for good our country? And now we face the greatest moral cha challenge. Today is abortion. Christians form the backbone of the pro-life movement. And why? Why would that be? Because Christians have always stood up for the most vulnerable in our society. Christians have always stood up for the weakest in our society and those who had no voice. And so that continues today. Every day in our country, over 2,000 babies are aborted. Every day. Every day. I, I'm, I think something like three, three quarters of a million babies are aborted in our country every year. And that may be an underestimate. It's the biggest social injustice in our country today. But, but when, we, when we view that and when we try to change that as Christians, we're not angry with women who find themselves pregnant or not prepared for motherhood. We're not mad at them. We're not angry. We want to help them. We want to love with action. We help them by, for women who have already had abortions, to offer them hope, life, forgiveness, freedom in Christ, meaning for their life. And, and for those who are facing that decision, we offer help by partnering with organizations like Heartbeat, Hope Medical in, in our community, who provide services for women who uh, are trying to figure out, faced with a possible pregnancy, trying to figure all that stuff out, not, maybe not even sure. They help those ladies. We have a whole bunch of people in our church that are involved with that. But the issue a lot of times is just funding. I mentioned Planned Parenthood a week or two ago. Planned Parenthood is a 501c3, just like our church, same law regarding politics or, or whatever. They receive millions and millions and millions of dollars in government funding. And, that, and that's why people are upset. That's why Christians are, are against the public funding of Planned Parenthood. Now, 
Sometimes you'll hear Planned Parenthood say, I'm off on a rabbit trail, but bear with me. Sometimes you'll hear Planned Parenthood say, well, only 3% of what we do involves abortions. That is a grossly misleading statistic. What they want to say is we provide all these services, very few of those services are abortions. But what that really means is if they hand out a condom, that's a service. That's how they're counting that. So let me just put it in a better perspective for you. Planned Parenthood provides services to women like many other organizations. For, for example, pap smear. They, their market share in America, less than 1%. Breast exams, their market share in America, how many of those do they do? 1.8%, less than 2%. Abortions, how many of those do they do? 30%. That's the misinformation that they give people. But anyway, I, I won't jump on. The point is, they have government funding. By the way, some of that funding goes right back six, over $6 million in the last election cycle to politicians. I'll get off that hobby horse. Back to heartbeat, hope medical. We want to influence our culture. We want to love people. We want to do it with action. I know the community might look at our church and say, well, Grace, Grace is rich. They got a new building. Yeah, we're not rich. We don't turn a profit like Planned Parenthood does of millions of dollars every year. We have a new building that we're still paying for that a bunch of you have committed, you know, in three-year increments that'll be up next year, you know, sometime next year. And then we'll continue to pay as just part of our budget on our building. Why? To change lives. You know, this year in our budget, we're a little bit behind. It's okay. I think every once in a while, we need to stop, and we need as a church to stand up, take a stand, and do something that's right. And so today, what I want us to do is to take an offering for Heartbeat Hope Medical, special offering. And we'll do that in just a moment. I'm not gonna call the ushers yet, but just to give you time to prepare. We have people in our church that serve on the front lines of the greatest social injustice in our country today. As a matter of fact, if you're part of Heartbeat in Fremont or Hope Medical in Tiffin, I'd like you to stand. Tony Brubaker, who's the, the director of, of Heartbeat, is right back here on the, on the front row of the back section. But if you're involved or you volunteer or you're involved, I'd like you to stand up. Yeah, stand up. We appreciate you. Let's, let's show them our appreciation. By the way, I, and, and so in a minute, we're going to take an offering for Heartbeat Hope Medical. You know, some of you know, they do fundraisers. We, there was a 5K race. By the way, I meddled in that race, third place. I don't want to talk about any details other than that. Uh, Rob Harmon can tell you those details. Don't even ask him. And yes, I ate cookies while I ran. Choking hazard, by the way, I found out. No milk, but anyway. And there's a fundraiser in October. So... In support of Heartbeat, just an example, those of us who ran, we paid $35 for the privilege of registering 
and running a 5K on support of Heartbeat Hope Medical. And you know what I started thinking after that race was over? I started thinking, I wonder how many of our people would pay for the privilege to not run a 5K? <laughs> how much would that be worth to people? So again, gonna take an offer in just a moment. And before we do that, I wanna throw out a disclaimer. At Grace, we don't talk about money that much, and if you're a guest and somebody brought you here, and, and that somebody who brought you here right now is going, oh no, why, why are we talking about this? We never talk about this. So if you're here and we're talking about money, we haven't done a second offering like this in two years. So I'll let you figure out why God had you show up on one out of a hundred Sundays that we happen to be doing this, because I can't answer that for you. The point is, is it's time for us as believers to put our money where our convictions are. So, if you can pull out your checkbook, or, and I know everybody is not in the position to give, I understand that, but many of us are, and it would be appropriate for us to give. We have people all over our church volunteering time. Amy out doing the, the tea, you know, was there yesterday. Let's make a difference. Let's love with action. Like our ushers right now to come, we're just going to pass the bags and uh, give you an opportunity. You know, I know some of you can't make the October fundraiser. You know, it's a dinner thing and some people, it's schedules and all that, and some of you don't know that much about it. But uh, so if you're planning on doing that, great. But if you're not sure you're going to make that, here's your chance right now to give all this offering, by the way, all of it, 100%, will go to Heartbeat Hope Medical. If you're writing a check, you can make it out to Grace Community Church. We'll process it. You'll get your tax deduction through Grace, and we'll send all that over to them. So just let them pass, pass that bag. I think the tide's beginning to turn on abortion in our country, and I believe it's beginning to turn because of technology. Because now we routinely watch babies in their womb. I think that's making an impact. And we do see percentages dropping a little bit. But abortion is obviously a moral issue in our country. And that's one of the issues that we as believers should be influencing. So I've heard a lot about this election cycle. There's a lot of people going, uh, not everybody, some of you won't like me saying this, but there's a lot of people going, how did we end up with these, these candidates? What have we come to? What should I do? Well, as believers, I think we need to pay attention to what their, each candidate's stance is on this issue of abortion. And by the way, when you hear uh, uh, protecting a mother's right to choose, or when you hear um, 
phrases like the right to reproductive health care, we're talking about abortion. That's what that is. That's just, that's just a, trying to put a nice terminology to abortion. Followers of Jesus tend to believe that life is too precious to destroy unless another life, the mother's life, is at risk. And so it's not only the candidate's position, but more importantly, it's who you think the candidates will nominate to judicial offices. That's huge. So if you're kind of, if you don't like any of our candidates, look at that issue. I think that will, will say a lot. So last question, what should we expect as believers? Well, actually, as believers, we should expect opposition. Actually, that's what Peter's telling us right here. I don't know if you caught verse 12. What did he say? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We got that part. So that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It doesn't say, if they slander you. It says, so when they slander you. We expect opposition as believers. Non-believers will want to find fault with us as believers. And I'm going to explain that in a moment. They'll, they'll typically kind of come after us. Non-believers will always be biased against us. Why? Well, because non-believers think just like we did before we were believers. You see, all people basically view that connection to God is through doing moral good works. Just about every religion, and a bunch of people who call themselves Christians believe that, that our connection to God is all through how good we are, doing good moral things. And so when believers say, I know God, that sounds tremendously egotistical. Oh, you're so good, you think you, you're positive that you know God? But see, it's a misunderstanding, right? Because what we're saying is, yeah, I know God, but it has nothing to do with how good I am. I know God because I can't be good. I know God because I'm messed up. I know God because I'm a sinner. I've violated His commands. I know God because I'm asking for help because I know I can't do it. So we understand why they view us skeptically and with bias. They, they think we're egotistical maniacs. You know, we know God, and they're like, can you know that? Who do you think you are? They're just like we were. And so we want to impact them with the gospel. We want to impact them by telling them, hey, we're not saying we're good. We're saying we're just like everybody else. 
We're messed up. And by the way, we are all messed up. It's really the people who don't think they're messed up. They're the egotistical ones, right? But a lot of non-believers will say, yeah, I get it. I'm messed up too. And we say, well, there's a solution. We've all violated God's commands, but God still loves us. And because of that, He sent His one and only Son to live the perfect life we couldn't live, none of us, and ultimately die for our sins because He was the only one qualified to do that because He was the only one that didn't have sins of His own to pay for. And so He allowed Himself to be tortured and killed on our behalf to pay for our wrongdoing so that a just God that says evil must be punished can forgive us because Jesus paid the punishment on our behalf. And the way we get that accredited to our account is simply through faith, simply by believing that Jesus is who He said He was, and by trusting in what He did on the cross of Calvary that, that that's enough to pay for all of your sins. It's that moment of trust, that's when you become a Christian. Not when you do some religious ritual. Your heart to God, one-on-one, -on -one, placing your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, not church or anything else, just Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. I know people are skeptical of us. It's because they don't know us well enough, and we want to continue doing good and pointing people to God. And there may be some here that you've been here with us for the last few weeks, and you're kind of a, a watchdog type person. And so you came, you got the flyer, so you came in to check out Grace to make sure that we didn't do anything that you thought might be wrong. And so you came in skeptically, and, and, and maybe you still are, but let me just tell you, we're glad you came, and we're glad you're here, and you are always welcome at Grace. Let's stand together, and we'll close in prayer. Before I pray, just… As we talked about the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, if, if you're here and it's a little foggy on whether you've placed your trust in Christ, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you have any questions about salvation, if you want to challenge us on anything, question us on anything, room one right there would be happy to talk with you. If that's a little too confrontational or a little too non-private, if you just want to look at something or read something in the privacy of your own home, we have that for you too. Just say, hey, can you give me one of those pamphlets? Just a, a thing from our church, just telling you what all evangelical churches say. Trust Christ for your salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your goodness. And God, we thank you for saving us because none of us deserve it. And it's just all by grace, just a gift from you that we don't deserve. And God, we want this gift for others and help us to be effective in, in spreading 
uh, your message of love to all people. And God, we thank you for the people that you've brought here at Grace. We are one people, your people. We are one family. Father, we thank you that no matter who's sitting across the room from us or next to us, we have more in common with them than anybody, their, their family. And Father, we thank you for how you've blessed our church, that we can make a larger and larger impact on our community. Father, we, we thank you that people from our church are out there on the front lines of the social injustices of our time, the greatest one being abortion, Lord, that they're out there doing the work, and Lord, we want to support them and encourage them. So God, help us to be effective, to do good, and to point people to you. And God, help us to always keep you first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.